I'm going to share a message that I have shared at least two other times here, maybe even more than that, I don't know. I mean, it's never quite exactly the same, but it's a message that really um, was birthed out of, Cindy and I went down to Alabama a few years ago to perform a wedding for a young lady who was from Columbia who I connected with on some mission trips. And it turned out that she was living at the home of a lady by the name of Dr. Sandy Kirk. And she ministers actually all over the world. But she had written a book. And the book was undone by the revelation of the Lamb. Obviously in reference to Jesus. And having read that book and really meditated on that book, it really did something in my own heart And I think it's especially relevant, it should be relevant every day, and it is, but I think it's especially relevant as we near Easter. And most years I wait another week or two to to share this, but uh, because of some scheduling things, I, I really felt like I wanted to share that this morning. The title of the message, if you like titles, is The Cup of God's Wrath. If you... Remember hearing it from me a year or two ago? I pray that you'll get more from it. If it's the first time, I hope it really causes you to think and meditate. In John chapter 18, verse 11, it says these words, and it's right after Judas has betrayed Christ in the garden. And Peter, of course, responded instantly, as Peter usually did, by drawing his little sword and lopping off a guy's ear. And Jesus says to him, Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup that the Father has not given me. You know, most of us have seen, all of us have seen, over the years, major events where people have gone through horrible, horrible suffering. And when this occurs, one of the questions that we all have, probably, or at least we've all heard, is why does God allow this kind of human suffering? We hear about this God who is a loving God. He's a kind God. He's a compassionate God. But yet we look throughout the world and there's suffering taking place all the time. Some we hear about if it's a big enough event, other things we don't hardly hear about. And I've got to admit that I also have that same thought sometimes. When things are going bad and you look at the world, you go, why does this happen? And really what's taking place when I go there in my own thinking is I am blaming God for something he's not done. I'm blaming God for things that he did not do. And today I want to give you what I believe is a much better and more accurate question than why does God allow this kind of suffering? And when you get the answer to this question, which I believe I'm going to be able to share at least in part, I think it should change our lives. It should change the way we think. It should change our hearts. The question that I think we should ask instead is, what has God done about human suffering? Not why does he allow it, but what has he done about it? 
I'm going to be sharing some thoughts as I go through this from the book Undone by the Revelation of a Lamb, and then we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures. And this morning, there's probably going to be more scriptures than you want to hear, and more than you'll probably be able to read on the screen, because I'm not going to read the whole scripture. So I would encourage you, if you want to, write down at least the references, so you can go back. Because I know when I've shared this before, and I shared this up at City Hill one time, there is amazing. I even had pastors come to me and say, I've never looked at it that way before. And whenever you hear something like that, you want to make sure you can check it out in the Scriptures and make sure it's in the Scriptures and being represented as accurately as possible. In her book, Dr. Sandy wrote some of these things. She wrote, Before creation had ever occurred, Before the planets, before the stars, before the beauty of the earth, before God even breathed life into Adam, God knew what sin would do to his creation and to the human race. He already knew. God saw into the future the horrors of genocide committed by such people as Lenin and Stalin and the demonic plan that that Hitler implemented in trying to come with what he considered the, the, the final solution. I'm sure that came straight from the devil himself to destroy the Jews and eliminate the Jews from Germany. God knew all these things before they ever happened. God saw all the pain and all the suffering that was going to take place in humanity because of things that are almost common. Things like divorce, drug abuse, alcohol, rape, murder, war, and the list could go on and on. He saw what the ravages of sin were going to do in the areas of disease, floods, famines, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes. And they seem to continue to increase in number and frequency as we get closer and closer to the end. God knew all of this before he even spoke anything into being in our universe. God saw what the fall of man was going to do to his creation. He knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. And he knew better than we would ever understand the consequences of that. The answer to the question, what has God done about human suffering, is really this. It's very simple, yet very, very deep. He asked his son Jesus to become a lamb. He asked his son Jesus to become the sacrificial lamb. Sadly, however, we've all heard that, but so many people reject it. Scripture I want to read is in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness, it's absurd, and it's illogical to those who are perishing and spiritually dead because they reject this message. But to us who are being saved by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the power of God. Many reject it. It's an answer that defies logic. Here we are trying to explain what God has done, and it just doesn't make sense to the natural mind. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, it's put this way. God has selected for his purpose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, revealing their ignorance. And God has selected for his purpose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong revealing their frailty. 
I read both of those scriptures from the Amplified Version. So if you think, God oh, doesn't read that way in mine, that's why. But it takes and amplifies the words. It doesn't make sense. This answer does not make sense to the natural mind. The unbelieving person cannot believe these things, accept these things, and understand these things unless there's the grace of God present. You and I would have never understood this in the natural. But by God's grace, he revealed these things to us as truth, and he extended grace for us to accept and receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Back to the story in the Bible. The scene that we're going to be looking at takes place after the Passover meal, that last Passover meal, what we call the Last Supper. When they're finished eating and they've taken what we call communion, Jesus took them and they walked through the city gate and they left the city of Jerusalem. They walked across the book Kidron right outside the city gate and they began to ascend up the Mount of Olives until they got to the place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe you've heard this before, I I think a lot of you have. Gethsemane simply means crushed olives. The picture being the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where the olives are harvested and then they are crushed and put under extreme pressure until the oil is released from the olives. It's a clear picture of what's going to take place in just a few moments in the life of Jesus. Jesus says these words to his disciples. And I would, I would like and ask you, if you could, to imagine you are with them. You imagine that you are with Peter and James and John, the three that he invited to come a little further into the garden with him when he was going to pray. And these are the words they heard from Jesus. And he says these words because he has become very distressed and troubled. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Imagine you've not seen Jesus like this before, ever. You've been traveling with him for the better part of three years, and you've never seen him like this. What is happening? What is going on? And when you look at Jesus, you can see great drops of blood. The Greek word there is thrombos, and it means almost like coagulated chunks of blood coming forth through his pores of his skin. This is before he's been beaten and flogged. This is before that whip with the lamb's bone was tearing at his flesh. This is before the crown of thorns was pushed on his head so that he was bleeding profusely from his head. It's before they had nailed and put nails into his wrists, his hands, his feet. It's before they'd stuck a spear in his side. It's before they laid him on a clothes slab or rock in a tomb. It's before all of that has taken place and he is sweating great drops of blood. And you're a witness to this. What could cause such trauma in Jesus? What could cause such agony in the Son of God? I can only imagine what the disciples were thinking. They had never seen their master like this before. So once again, to try to explain it, I want to go back in time. I want to go back before creation. I'm not going to look at the words that Dr. Kirk wrote in her book. I'm going to look at the words that we find in the scriptures. And here's what we see. 
we are going to see in the scriptures, before the creation of the world, it was as if there was a meeting between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in this meeting, something was agreed to. Something that's called the eternal covenant. We see in the New Testament what is called the covenant of redemption. In Hebrews 13, verse 20, it says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. An eternal covenant. One from before the creation. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it, for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. In 1 Peter 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the feudal way of life inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Notice that all these scriptures were talking about something that was known or happened before creation even occurred. Second Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Something took place before creation occurred. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had a meeting and the full extent of this covenant was revealed so all would know. They knew a mystery that man did not know. It. They knew a mystery that we now know that has now been revealed to us. What they were agreeing to was the covenant we call the covenant of redemption. God the Father is revealing to God the Son what it's going to take to redeem creation. I'll probably say this more than once. Jesus had to know and understand what was coming. He wasn't going to be a man walking the earth and all of a sudden surprised on the cross. Because if it was a surprise to him, he wasn't going willingly as a sacrificial lamb. He was being tricked. Or hoodwinked. So I believe completely, he completely knew and understood, and it was revealed and it was agreed to before the foundations of the world. Jonathan Edwards wrote these words about this situation. He said, Some things were done before the world was created. Yes, from eternity. The persons of the Trinity, as it were, confederated in a design and a covenant. Of redemption. In this covenant, the Father had appointed the Son, and the Son had undertaken the work, and all things to be accomplished were stipulated and agreed upon. We see that in all those scriptures that there's something. So let's return to the garden scene. God is deeply grieved, in his own words, Jesus says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. 
In Matthew 26, 38, it says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. In Luke twenty two forty four, he says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The blood being forced out of his skin, out of the pores of his skin. There was such internal agony and stress caused by something. Mark 14, 34 through 36, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. They had seen Jesus in situation after situation after situation for three years of ministry, and they've never seen anything like this. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And hear his prayer. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Not, yet not what I will, but what you will. Why is there such agony in Christ? He's God in the flesh. Why is there such a burden in his soul, grieving him to the point of death, that his physical body was literally breaking down and that the the blood was being forced through the pores of his skin? That's agony. What was causing it? Well, I believe a partial answer is the cup. When you look at his prayer, his prayer was, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. What was in the cup? What was the cup? Was it the shame? Was it the humiliation? Was it all the things he was going to go through, the scourging and the spikes being driven into his body, the crown of thorns? Was it all of these things, the spear in the side? Was it knowing all these things were going to happen to him, that he was going to be crucified and die and be buried in a tomb? Were those the things? And I think, no, the answer is not that. It certainly might have been part of it, but I don't believe that's the answer. You know one of the reasons I don't believe that's the answer? Over the centuries... Hundreds, if not thousands of people have been martyred for Christ. They've been hung on a cross and crucified just like Christ was. There's been martyrs who, at the threat of, if not renouncing Jesus Christ, they would have their heads cut off and be decapitated. There's been, throughout the centuries, people who were burned at the stake unless they renounced Christ and they never renounced Christ. They have been tortured for Christ. They have been beaten for Christ. We could tell you horror stories of martyrs in different lands that have been through unbelievable things. And I will not believe that they were stronger than Jesus. I will not believe that their faith was stronger than Jesus. I will not believe that they had more confidence in God the Father than Jesus had in God the Father. So as horrible as those things are, what must have been in the cup that would cause him to grieve to the point of death? To pray that prayer, Father, take this cup from me, if it's possible. Well, going back into the Old Testament once again, the term the cup was used metaphorically many places. And most every place that it was used, not all, but most every place it was used, it was a metaphor for the pouring out the judgment of God. 
the cup, the judgment of God. Psalm 75, 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices poured out the wine in judgment. Ezra 23.33 The cup of horror and the cup of desolation. Jeremiah 25.15 Filled with the wine of my wrath, filled to the brim with God's anger. Isaiah 51.17 and verse 22 also The cup that made you stagger for the cup, the goblet of my wrath. Isaiah 53.4 and 5 We consider him stricken of God, smitten of him, afflicted. The punishment that brought peace upon us. Over and over and over we see the scriptures where the cup is referred to as this cup filled with a boiling cauldron of his wrath, his anger being poured out on sin because of sin. In Revelation 14.10, there's a clear description given by an angel. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get back into Revelation, our study of Revelation, and we're going to be walking through chapter after chapter after chapter of the wrath of God being poured out on sin, on those who reject Christ. In Revelation 14.10, it says this, this is what will happen to all who reject God. They will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever, and they will have no rest day and night. Those who receive the mark of the beast and reject Christ, and all who have rejected Christ up until that time, will experience this kind of wrath on the judgment of sin. And in Revelation 16, 19, it just simply says, the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. I believe that the cup that Jesus was praying so fervently for the God, the Father, to remove in the Garden of Gethsemane the night he was arrested was this cup. This cup. The cup of God's wrath being poured out. Imagine in that cup Dr. Kirk, who's much better at writing in a colorful way than I, wrote things like this. It's hell's blazing fury in a cup. And wave after wave after wave after wave of his fury and his wrath and his anger is going to be poured out on Jesus on that cross. All of that wrath and anger would make nails in your arms and feet seem like nothing. The crown of thorns like nothing. But the wrath of God being poured out on all sin. It's as if he took the wrath that every single one of us deserved and every human being that ever walked the earth that they all deserved. It was like it was all condensed down into this cup of God's wrath to be poured out on Jesus. And I believe that's what he saw when he looked into that cup. That's what he saw when he said, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup. But I also believe he saw something else in the cup. 
What could overcome that kind of fear? What could overcome that kind of agony? What could overcome the feelings that he was going through, knowing what he was going to have to endure? And I believe what he saw in the cup was us. He saw his bride in that cup. And he knew from before the foundations of the earth, this was what it was going to cost to redeem his bride to redeem his church. And that overwhelming love that he has for us is what carried him to the cross and the willing to take and drink of the cup. The love that he had for his church, for his bride. In Hebrews 13, verse 20, it says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus Christ. The covenant of redemption required the wrath of God, the anger of God to be poured out for sin. Our sin. Jesus never sinned. He took our sin. Theologians have a word for this. He became our propitiation. Our propitiation. It's a big word. That simply means, and you can find bigger definitions, but a very simple definition is this, a sacrifice to avert wrath. I can think of movies we've watched or or cults or in foreign countries when when people in ancient Egypt, they would always offer up sacrifices to appease the gods, to avert the wrath of God. Jesus was the one and only true propitiation. He is the one and only true sacrifice to avert wrath. He didn't just erase it. He took it on himself. He diverted it from you and me to himself. In John 1, 1 John, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. What John is saying there is, I'm going to write something down that should motivate you to not sin. And what that thing is, he goes on and says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm writing these things so that you shouldn't sin. I'm going to give you a motivation not to sin. But if you do, I want you to know this. Even if you do, we have a mediator, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on in verse 2 and says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. John Piper wrote these words in regard to this. He said, God sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing propitiation for us. The wrath-absorbing sacrifice to divert sin. As our substitute, Jesus does not just cancel the wrath. He absorbs it and diverts it from us to himself. And according to scriptures, this is what Jesus agreed to in eternity past. He knew it was in the cup. He knew it was coming. He knew. I believe the love that he has for us is what compelled him to drink of the cup. But what about the Father? And some people who understand this to a degree get to this point and they go, what kind of God is that? 
What kind of father would ever do that to his son? He's a child abuser. Like there's been no other. Is he just a totally heartless God who doesn't care about anybody or anything? He could do something like this to his own son. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. No one loves Jesus more than the Father. No one has ever loved Jesus more than the Father. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been in communion and fellowship for eternities past and will be in eternity future. No one. No one is pained over the wrath, over the cup, more than the Father. John Piper wrote these words. In that very moment, when God's curse rested most heavily on Jesus because of sin, the Father's love for His Son reached explosive proportion. You know how proud you can be when you would sit down and tell your child, you know, this is where you need to go, this is what you need to do, and I know it's going to be hard, I know there's going to be challenges, I know you're going to suffer defeat, I know how hard it could be. And then you hear a testimony where they've succeeded, and you're just so proud, and your love just overexplodes. I believe that's what God the Father felt for the Son. From eternity past, they knew this day was coming. And if he could possibly love him more, which is impossible because he is love, that would have been the moment. John Stott, some of you may have heard of him. He's written a number of books. One of them is The Cross of Christ. He wrote these words. In giving his son, he gave himself. Through the person of his son, he himself bore the penalty which he himself inflicted. There is neither harsh injustice nor unprincipled love, nor Christological heresy in any of that. There is only one unfathomable mercy. This last part of the sentence you you really got to think about. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. God's divine love triumphed over the divine wrath that he had to He had to express because of his hatred for sin. And he did it by divine self-sacrifice. He came in the form of his son. This is what takes place. This is what we celebrate and remember on Good Friday. And we see the ultimate victory of it on Easter morning. But this is something that should just stir in our hearts every day. This is how much he loves you. We believe the lies of the enemy he comes and accuses us and tries to tell you because something's happening in your life. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care. You're too bad a person. You're too evil. You sin too much. Those are all lies from the pit of hell. The truth is, from eternity past, before the creation of the world, before Adam and before Eve, Jesus knew what was coming. And because he loves us so much, he went to the cross and he took the wrath. I sometimes picture when I'm reading this stuff, I I picture hanging on the cross and just wave after wave after wrath, a wave of wrath of God being poured out upon you. And when Jesus said those words, it is finished, it brings so much more meaning. It is finished. The price has been paid. It is finished. I'm going to die now. It is finished. The payment has been made in full. The wrath of God. I endured it all on the cross. It is finished. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, 
Sometimes we neglect the real message of the cross. Sometimes we get impressed with what we may call the deeper things of God. There's nothing deeper than the cross. There's nothing more supernatural than the cross. There's no greater miracle than what took place at the cross. But all of those things can distract us. We can get so wrapped up in all those deeper things of God and we forget the cross. And we need to be reminded of the cross. And we need to be reminded that it's an empty cross. There's an empty tomb. And that God that loved us so much, that Jesus that loved us so much that he took all that, is now seated at the right hand of the Father according to the word of God, and he's working. He's interceding for us. He did all that for us, and he's still fighting for us because he loves us so much. The love that he has for us is what compelled him. Can you imagine, and I hope we can, what a church full of believers who understand what we've been talking about and understand how much he loves us and out of that understanding loved him so passionately that we would be driven to express that love to him in our worship and in our lifestyle and our serving. Can you imagine what that kind of church would do in impacting the community around us? the people around us. Usually we find that individual or two that are compelled with that kind of passion, that kind of passion, that kind of drive, and we almost cringe in embarrassment because they're too on fire for God. Now, we know there's such a thing as wisdom. We know that. But we should all be that on fire for God. If we believe what the Word of God says, we should understand the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on all those who reject Christ. When we study and finish the book of Revelation, that kind of wrath, that kind of punishment is what the unbeliever is going to endure. We should not want that for anyone. Why? Because God doesn't want that for anyone. His desire is that none should perish, but all would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. That should drive us. That should motivate us. I want to close with two quick scriptures. Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Is the world crucified unto you or is is the world drawing you and wooing you and snaring you? And I have been crucified unto the world, it says. Are you crucifying your flesh daily, as the Word of God says we need to do, because the world can really influence us. What is your focus on? What do you talk about? What do you spend your money on? What do you spend your time on? God forbid that I should glory in anything else. In 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I hope as you hear and read the Easter story, the Easter message, you have a new focus, a greater understanding. 
if he'd have just took the physical abuse, that would have been more than enough to deserve our love. But when we begin to realize the fullness of the wrath of God that was poured out on him so we didn't have to receive it, it should compel us. It should drive us to a kind of love that we may have never experienced before for anybody. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you beyond what my words could ever express for what you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have accomplished. What you have done about suffering, though we are in this earth and sin is still prevalent and there is still suffering all around us, we know that you have sent a cure. You have sent a propitiation. You have sent a sacrifice in your son Jesus. He came as a lamb and was sacrificed and he diverted all that wrath that we deserved unto himself and he took it for us. God, I pray that we would have a greater revelation of how much love that is. That every single one of us here would know that God loves us no matter what anybody else may say or do. That we are loved by you. We are precious in your sight. You declare that we have been adopted. We are children. We are joint heirs with Jesus. God, I thank you that we can stand on those truths that we can be set free of lies of the enemy that may have kept us bound for years by receiving that truth that we are yours and you love us no matter what. I pray as we go into this Easter season where people are more open to hear and talk about Jesus that we would have opportunities to share just how amazing our Jesus is. I pray now, Lord, that you would watch over us and keep us safe. Bless us wherever we may go this week. Father, we continue to pray as the body of Christ and the family here at Victory for the Hissom family. We continue to pray for Jeff and Stephanie and the kids, the extended family at the loss of their beautiful young daughter, Emily. We pray you would truly be the God of comfort and, and hope peace and joy in the midst of this. Be with them in the days and weeks and months ahead. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.